Good morning, Westside. It's great to be with you today. And uh, if you're online or in person, uh, I still would love to connect with you. So if you're online, I would like for you to hit that connect link and um, that'll send me uh, an email and I'll be able to connect with you and pray for you. And if you're in person, just fill out a connect card. That, that'd be awesome. We just love to have you and love to hear from you. Uh, we got a lot to go through today, so I'm just going to kind of jump in, and we're just going to get started. Several years ago, there were two teenagers that tried to rob, believe it or not, a YMCA on the Lower East Side of New York City. They hid until they thought everybody had left, and when they got what they wanted to get, what they came to get, as they were leaving, they saw a man behind a desk, and he was on his phone, and so they just assumed he was calling the police. So they went over, they grabbed him, they took out brass knuckles, and they just began to beat him. And then they drug him and left him behind the pool. When the Y opened the next morning, they found his body. His name was Don Tippett, and believe it or not, he survived. But one of his eyes were, was so badly damaged that it couldn't be saved. The two teens were eventually caught and they were brought to trial. But then something amazing happened. Don Tippett got the judge to parole them into his care. He wanted to give these two boys a second chance. He believed that they could change. Now, one of the boys didn't change. In fact, he was arrested again and he was sent to jail. But the other, the other boy changed because of the forgiveness that he was given and the love that he was shown from Don Tippett. He eventually graduated from high school, went on to college, and then he went to med school. He later became one of the nation's leading eye surgeons, all because of a second chance. If you're with us for the first time, we're in week 10 of an amazing series called One Big Story. And we're dealing with the story in the book of Exodus when God begins the process of delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. As we've seen the last two weeks, God's choice for deliver was a guy by the name of Moses. But what we're going to discover as we come into chapter 3, that in Moses' mind, he saw himself as an 80-year-old, insecure failure. But here's the cool thing. God's the God of second chances. And in spite of his failures, God is going to call him to be the deliverer. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, I thank you for all you do. I just thank you for this day and the opportunity we have to come before you. God, speak to us today. May my words be yours. Open our hearts, open our minds. Help us to see what you have. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, as I thought about Moses' life, I believe Moses wasn't always insecure. I don't think he always felt like a failure. In fact, I think he grew up with a lot of confidence. I mean, after all, he was a good-looking guy who was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as a prince. He was Pharaoh's adopted grandson, and he was next in line to be Pharaoh. That would give you a lot of security and a lot of confidence. 
But then he discovered who he truly was, who he really was. He was a Hebrew. And maybe he had known it for a long time, I don't know, but, but he decided that it was better to be associate, associated with his true people than to enjoy the sinful pleasures that having whatever he wanted would bring him. But when he saw the suffering and he saw the slavery that his people were under, he felt like God wanted him to do something about it. But the problem was he kind of ran ahead of God. He kind of did things his way, and it got him into trouble. In fact, things went south very fast. You see, the Jewish people mocked him when he came and said, hey, I believe God's going to have me deliver you. They rejected him, and they mocked him. Pharaoh disowned him, and he ended up killing an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating one of his fellow Hebrew slaves. Now, let me tell you, that's a bad day at the office, right? I mean, everybody hates you, your boss fires you, and then you kill somebody on your way out of the parking lot. I mean, no wonder Moses felt like an insecure failure. Now, as I look at Moses' response to all this, I have found that there are three things that, typically, uh, that we typically do when we feel like Moses felt. In fact, all three of these are found in how Moses responds. The first is this, we tend to run ahead of the will of God. We tend to run ahead of the will of God. I mean, that's exactly what Moses did. He got ahead of God. He ran ahead of God's will. And as I thought about that, here's the thing that hit me. If we're constantly running ahead of God's will, that means we are looking back to see how close God is to catching up with us. And when we're constantly looking behind us, hoping God's going to catch up with us, that's when we stumble, that's when we fall, that's when we get ourselves into trouble because we are running ahead of God. The second thing is this, we run and hide once we, fa we failed, and that's exactly what Moses did, right? He ran to Midian. He got away from his failures. And the third is this, we let our feelings of inferiority and insecurity overwhelm us. And when that happens, we begin to compare ourselves with others. We constantly think that somebody else is more qualified than we are. And the problem with that is this. At that moment, like with Moses, we fail to realize that we're the one that God is speaking to. We're the one he's calling not the person we are comparing ourselves to. In fact, we'll discover that when God calls Moses, Moses just simply makes excuse after excuse for why God's choice of him was wrong. I mean, can you, can you imagine that? I mean, do you do that? It's like God really wants you to do something, and he's calling you to do something, and yet you make excuse after excuse after excuse, like God doesn't know what he's doing. Here's what we have to understand. The basis of divine choice is often contrary to what makes sense to us as human beings. You get that? The basis of divine choice is often contrary to what makes sense to us as human beings. It may not make sense to us, but it does to God. And that's why we have to trust him. 
A classic example of, of this would be the 12 disciples. I mean, think about it. On paper, man, these guys are probably not your first choice for committed world changers, right? I mean, Peter loved to open his mouth and stick his foot in it. Uh, he, he was getting himself into trouble all the time. In fact, as we know, he eventually even said he didn't even know who Jesus was. And we see this all throughout the Bible. The Bible is filled with people like that. And yet God uses them to accomplish the impossible. And the same is true for Moses. In spite of his reluctance, God, God's about to turn this shepherd into something amazing. He's about to turn his world upside down. So let's get started as we begin to unpack chapter 3. Let me ask you, have you ever wondered what Moses' day may, may have consisted of? You ever thought about it? I mean, after all, for the last 40 years after he fled Egypt and went to Midian, for the last 40 years, he's probably had the same routine day after day after day. I mean, it's desert. So he has the same landscape, the same types of sheep, the same smells. And as this day begins with Moses, I imagine that he probably didn't expect anything out of the ordinary. After all, it was just another day tending sheep in the desert. Now, if I was Moses, I would have hoped for something different that would break the monotony of just tending sheep. I mean, his life was all too predictable. He knew all there was to know about tending sheep. He knew the grazing places. He knew the exact locations of every watering hole within miles, and it was etched in his mind. I'm sure he could have led those sheep with his eyes closed. He knew it that well. But little did he know that not only would this day be the beginning of a new chapter in his life, but everything that had happened to him as a shepherd in the wilderness, get this, it was preparation for Israel's time of deliverance. Here's what I mean by that. Think about this for a moment. First of all, he would be leading the people of Israel through the same wilderness that he has spent the last 40 years getting to know. He's going to be leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he will lead them through the same wilderness that has been his daily routine for 40 years. Secondly, he's been leading lots of sheep. And let me tell you, that is great preparation for leading lots of people. After all, our behavior is a lot like sheep, right? And thirdly, one aspect of great leadership is humility. Forty years of being a shepherd after 40 years of being a prince teaches humility. So if you got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up. And we're going to begin reading in Exodus chapter 3 with verse 1. Follow along. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai. 
the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. Again, it's just another ordinary day in the life of Moses until God decides to get his attention. And as I thought about that, this is what hit me. When God is going to move in your life, he's probably not going to warn you in advance. He probably won't give you a dream the night before where he says, you better get ready because your life's about to change tomorrow. The truth is, if that happened, you'd be awake all night trying to figure out what in the world God was up to, right? Here's what I think God does. In the middle of the ordinary, when you least expect it, God moves you into a new paragraph or into a new chapter of your story. And that's what he's doing here with Moses. And it grabs Moses' attention. And he has to check it out. I mean, after all, this bush, it's on fire. But it's not being consumed. It's not being burned up. Now, have you ever thought why a burning bush? Well, one, I'm not sure, but one of the things I think it, it, it possibly is is because uh, it's a symbol of the glory and the presence and the power of God. That fire is, the, is that symbol of the glory, the presence, and the power of God. Now, understand, God can speak to us however he wants to, but don't overlook the unconventional ways. Just because you're expecting to hear from him in a certain way, don't dismiss the unconventional way he may choose to speak into you and to pour into you. I mean, I guarantee you that Moses never forgot that moment. He never forgot seeing that bush on fire but not being consumed. Now, he may have not liked it, but I guarantee you he never forgot it. Now, as we think about this moment in his life, there are several descriptions of the God of the burning bush that I want us to look at for a moment. And the first one is this. The God of the burning bush is a holy God. He is a holy God. Look, look what it says starting in verse 4. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called him from the middle of the bush Moses, Moses. Now, uh, do you know why he uses Moses' name twice here? Do you know? Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I don't know. He just does it, right? He just says, Moses, Moses. And Moses goes, here I am. He replied, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Now, I've got a question for you. What's so holy about a barren desert? I mean, after all, Moses had been looking at this ground for 40 years. 
It's desert, it's barren, it's a place you lead sheep from, not to. And so what makes this ground holy now, at this moment? You know what it is? It's the presence of God. The presence of God is what makes this place holy. Here's a principle that we need to understand. God's presence gives ordinary places, ordinary circumstances, and ordinary people an extraordinary status. How cool is that? God's presence, his holiness, gives ordinary places, ordinary circumstances, ordinary people an extraordinary status. And let me tell you, if the Lord is in this place, and the Lord has brought you to this place, then embrace him. Because he's here. But the second is this. The God of the burning bush is also the God of Moses' forefathers, Israel's God. Let's start in verse 6. I am the God of your father, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. You see, Moses understood that he is the God who made a covenant with Abraham. That's who's speaking to him from this bush that's on fire, not being consumed. It's the God who made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And it's not a new and different God who is making himself known. I mean, he was raised in Egypt, and they had all these gods that they worshipped. But this isn't like that. This is the one true God, the God of, God of his forefathers. The God of Israel. And this won't be some new plan that God's bringing but simply the fulfillment of the old plan, the one that was revealed to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So he's the God of, of Moses' forefathers, Israel's God. But the God of the burning bush is also a compassionate God. He's a compassionate God. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own uh, fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. God's intention to deliver the Israelites, Israelites from Egyptian bondage is not only motivated by his holiness, it's not only motivated by his covenant, but it's motivated by his compassion because he loves his people and he wants to deliver them out of that compassion. But the God of the burning bush is also a God who commissions people to participate in his purpose. He's a God who commissions people to participate in his purposes. Look at verse 10. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You 
must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Now, even though God is going to be directly involved in the deliverance of his people, he will do so through a human vessel. In other words, God is manifesting himself to Moses because he intends to manifest himself through Moses. Did you get that? God is manifesting himself to Moses because he intends to manifest himself through Moses. And so he commissions, he calls Moses to return to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and to lead the Israelites to freedom. Now, what follows in verses 11 through 15 is much like the honest exchange that you and I have with God when we feel very inadequate, when we feel very insecure, and we feel like our failures are keeping us from really doing what God has called us to do. And so Moses says to God, he says, who am I? I can't do this. I can't stand against Pharaoh or the Egyptian army. And God says, I'll be with you. And Moses says, but I can't answer their questions. And God says, I will provide the answers because I am who I am. And I will do great things through you. But instead of trusting in who God is, he continues to try to weasel his way out of going with one excuse after another. Commentators tend to agree that this exchange reveals the deep insecurities that Moses was carrying around with, with him from his past failures. In fact, they point out that it goes back to the statement, or this statement, who am I, goes back to the time when Moses approached the people of Israel uh, and he said, I'm going to be del your deliverer. And they rejected him. And they made fun of him. And it goes back to that time. And here's what I thought. It seems like what they did scarred the very soul of Moses. And he had, he had trouble getting past their words. When they said, who are you, and why would we follow you? Now, maybe that has happened to you in your life. Maybe somebody has criticized you or put you down for so long that you've started to believe those things about yourself. Maybe it was a parent or an ex-spouse or an abusive boss, a so-called friend or a bad relationship. And maybe their words destroyed who you truly are. Those words destroyed who God created you to be. I think this is what happened to Moses. But here's the cool thing. God doesn't beat Moses down. And he's not going to beat you down either. Simply because of your past mistakes or failures. Instead, God shifts the narrative back to himself. And he says, it's okay. It's okay, Moses, because I'm going to be with you. 
Yes, I don't. I know you don't understand. And yes, I know you don't think you can do this. And yes, I know you're saying, who am I? But I will be with you. I will be with you. Here's a principle that we have to understand. Real confidence and a sense of security in who you are doesn't come from a better assessment of your potential, but from a clearer view of who God is. Let me repeat that. Real confidence and a sense of security in who you are doesn't come from a better assessment of your potential, but from a clearer view of who God is. I believe that God is saying in this exchange, Moses, this is not about you. It's not about you having what it takes. This is about me accomplishing my purposes. Yes, you have a role in my purpose, but the power to accomplish it and the success that follows it, they come from me, not you. I just need you to be my vessel that trusts me in the battle and trusts me with the victory. Again, confidence comes not from discovering greater things about yourself or tapping into your potential. Confidence comes from seeing how big and how powerful God is and discovering his purpose for your life. Here's what I believe gets some of us into trouble. I think many people make a critical mistake when they read the Bible. They assume the Bible is primary about, primarily about them that it's a manual about spiritual tips for helping them achieve a victorious Christian life. And yes, God does want us to live that abundant, victorious life. But they approach God trying to see how he can help them achieve their life's purpose. But the problem is this. They've got it all wrong. The Bible is not primarily about them. It's about God. Page after page reveals who he is, and it's only when you come to an awareness of who he is can you honestly discover who you are. Only by surrendering to and becoming confident in his purpose will you ever become confident in yours. Now, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you struggle with. I don't know your failures or your mistakes. I don't know your insecurities, but you do because you struggle with them. I don't know necessarily what was the cause of those. But the good news I have for you is this. We have a God who's the God of a, of a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a hundredth chance. He will give you that second chance. He's the God who doesn't look at what you've done, but what you can become if you just give him your life. And so whatever you're struggling with today, whatever is eating away in your heart, you just got to surrender that to God and begin to look at who he is, not who you think you are. And so if that's you and you you have anything that you you just need to get off your chest or that you need to talk about or you're struggling with, hit that connect link. Go to our website if you're watching online. 
and go to our next steps page and discover who God is. Pray with me. Father, I just thank you for this day. Thank you for all you do. I thank you for being our amazing, wonderful Father. I thank you for being the God of second chances. It's in your name we pray. Amen.